You're listening to Monocle on Saturday, first broadcast on the 5th of June 2021 on Monocle 24. And a very warm welcome. I'm Emma Nelson, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour, we'll be at Monocle's Bardi Market in Zurich, where they're setting up for the weekend. Our editorial director, Tyler Brule, will be standing by for an update on the fun. And my guest, Florian Egli, will join me from our radio studio in Dufourstrasse 90 to go through the newspapers. Then after that, our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, suffers technical troubles. I looked at the app to see how far I had heroically traversed. It said I'd run 750 metres. Panic. Fear. What had happened? Was it all a dream? Lots to look forward to on Monocle on Saturday. First, a quick look at today's main news headlines. Finance ministers from the G7 group of leading economies say they're confident they'll agree on a taxation system to target multinational companies. The deal is aimed at targeting tech giants such as Amazon and Microsoft. Donald Trump's Facebook accounts have been suspended for two years by the social media giant. The former president had been banned indefinitely following January's Capitol riots, but Facebook's oversight board has criticised this. And France is to reopen for international tourism from June the 9th. Vaccinated European tourists and from most of the rest of the world will no longer need to take a Covid test. It's expected to offer a welcome boost for France's tourism sector. And those are the headlines. So today we have quite a special programme because it's half anchored from London and we have our special guests in Zurich. Today is the Bari Market Day for Monocle on Dufourstrasse 90 and as a result we're going to be having guests coming and going. One of them is Florian Egli, Senior Associate at Foraus, the Swiss foreign policy think tank, uh, here to look at some of the newspapers uh, for the programme. But also a very good morning to you, Florian. How are you? Good morning, Emma. Very well, thank you. Just arrived here at the wonderful body market. So tell us, what have you spotted so far at the body market? So I have to admit, I rushed through because I had to get to my newspapers. I was running late, as always on the weekends. So I will actually admit that I will take my time at the market after um, this show. The reason, but OK, well, you'll be absolutely forgiven for that, for the simple reason that you have done some heavy lifting for us this morning by having a look at the <laughs> newspapers, haven't you? I did, I did. How are they looking this morning? They're looking they're looking not so bad. So I found quite a quite a quite a bit of positive stories. Um and also some weird ones. So we'll 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 do a little tour d'horizon um from you know, Switzerland to the US, back to France. Let's uh, let's get the, the the sort of the meat and drink of the of the big headlines out of the way. I think would it be an idea to start off with what's happening behind closed doors at the G7 here in London? Because I know that here in London, the FT weekend is leading with big economies set to unveil deal on taxing multinational profits, and I think the Targus and Cygras has got something similar. Indeed, and both are actually in front of my eyes here. Um, So I think this is quite remarkable because it's actually the first time in a century um, that we might, you know, embark on a new taxation scheme that is basically global because all big economies um, would actually, you know, abide to it. And what's kind of the talk about? So um, President Joe Biden entered the negotiation um, with a demand of a 21% minimum corporate tax rate that would be applied 
worldwide globally. And that's, of course, in part because he needs money um, in you know, his government to finance the, um, the COVID recovery plans that he's announced. So he's announced a big infrastructure plan um, and he's announced um, a big um, plan that he's called a family plan, um, which is basically going to revamp social security in the US. And so the question is, where does the money um, come from for this? And part of it, um, according to Joe Biden's plan, is coming from corporates. And because of his demands, you know, this whole discussion um, that's been going on since um, 2013, mainly at the OECD, has gained speed again. And now we're apparently quite close um, to finding an agreement, not at the 21% that Joe Biden demanded, but at the 15%, um, which is still, by the way, higher than 18 of 26 cantons in Switzerland. Um, so there will be, um, you know, there will be implications of this if a deal is finally reached. The implications are far-reaching, aren't they? I mean, for, for starters, this is the first time that the big tech giants are being seriously targeted to pay the tax that many people think that they should actually morally just get on with paying. Um, but also there is that issue that you start getting countries who are able or willing to embrace any new taxation system. And it's arguably easy enough for the G7 to do it because they have got the heft and, and, and they can they can sort of cope with it. But if you have other countries, I'm thinking of Ireland, for example, which has done extremely well out of the current system, being shoehorned into a, a new global taxation system, that's not going to go down very well, is it? Yeah, you could add Switzerland to that list, right? Um, so it's not going to go down very well, I think. But, you know, these are these are power games. So if I would I would almost argue it's not not even all of the G7 are needed. You know, if you have two, three really major economies, then it just becomes extremely difficult for these um, for these multinational um, companies to avoid that because they they must do business in the U.S. and they must do business in the European Union. So if you have those two aligned, um, or you know the major countries' markets in the European Union and the U.S., um, then you know that is just very close to to a new global standard and smaller countries like Ireland or Switzerland will, you know, come under a lot of pressure um, to follow suit. And, um, you know, it might, you know, raise um, some anger um, in these in these smaller countries. And we already see a bit of that discussion in Switzerland, um, especially, of course, in the cantons that try to attract business with lower tax rates. But overall, you know, the, the, the room of negotiation of these small countries will be very, very limited. And it's interesting that you mentioned the tech companies, because I think, um, the you know the, the corona um, or the covid pandemic has really um, again illustrated this because we've seen such skyrocketing profits um, at these tech companies and at the same time we've seen many sort of inner city streets um, kind of emptying out because you know retail had to be uh, had to remain closed so it just again amplified and really you know made this divide visual that that you know there are these tech companies that just profit enormously um, but are kind of you know, it's it's hard to to give them a personality almost. You know, you greet somebody at the door and that's the maximum interaction you have. So there are these anonymous tech giants. And I think, you know, it's not to underestimate what public sentiment um, plays in all of this and, and in, in helping these, you know, political leaders reach a an agreement. It's funny because you, you, you know, mentioned the, the public sentiment that trust in governments is at an all-time low. Trust in large companies is at an all-time low. But is there a general realisation now from the tech companies that after 30 years of having it pretty easy, um, the jig is now up and they have to start to pay taxes? Or are we going to expect some serious pushback or, or, or indeed threats from companies to say, actually, 
yes, you know, yes, we feel obliged that we need to work within the US and the and, and the European Union, but we will try and make sure that we do something to um, avoid having to to follow the rules right to the letter. I expect very serious pushback um, and very very smart communication because you know Google started out with their 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 motto of do no evil and at the same time you know they've just just as others have you know as as Amazon has as Apple has um, they have you know professionalized their their business around you know maximizing profits maximizing profits for their shareholders um, I mean they've set up massive structures you know in terms of transfer pricing where they account for their profits in which jurisdictions so you know th there is a whole there is a whole business model formed around that and they won't give that up just um, just so easily um, however they are really dependent on the public opinion because in the end you know these companies make money by actually us users going through their sites using their services and so the, their public image is really crucial for them and that's why um, before I said I think you know the public sentiment really plays a role in that and and I think they are aware of that and so if if that tide is about to turn then I'm pretty sure that they you know will give in um, if that tide is not about to turn and you know they, they are the best to to judge that because they can monitor what we say online very uh, very well um, then if, if that's not going to happen then I expect very serious pushback and, and lobbying efforts let's move to a lovely story in Le Monde uh the uh, Cannes Festival had been delayed until July and Le Monde is now covering the fact that by all accounts, if everything goes well, this is the Cannes Film Festival will go ahead this year and the Quasette will be filled at a certain social distance with all the right faces in all the right places at all the right times. It will be, and uh, this is a very optimistic piece, and I think there is really nothing that's going to stop this from 6th of, um, to the 17th of July. Um, 64 movies um, are about to screen in Cannes, um, so France is leading the official competition with seven movies. There is a bit of national pride in the article as well about that. Um, and, and, you know, there is strict sanitary protocol in place. And the, the, the article mentions un pass sanitaire, so some, some sort of certificate. I don't know if by then we'll have an official one, but um, the, the general rules are, you know, that either you have to be vaccinated or you have to have a positive test, um, you know, a couple of weeks or months back or a negative PCR test. And they're confident that they can actually go ahead and, and you know, with a proper film festival. So so that's exciting news. I wonder how they're going to balance the elegance and the glamour with something as rather uh, clinically description as a passe sanitaire. It doesn't sound remote. <laughs> uh, it's going to have to be gold-plated or embossed with something glorious, isn't it? It's it, that question of balance now that we've got to have. You've got to have a nice life and enjoy things, yet at the same time be mindful that some sort of temperature might be taken or you might have to have something funny on your face to keep yourself all, all protected up that there's there's that sort of incorporating the rather humdrum and boring health measures that are necessary with the joy of having a little bit of fun Yes, and perhaps we'll see, you know, little Palme d'Or masks that are distributed <laughs> in Cannes. So, I mean, I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, what, how the sanitary protocol looks and I hope for, you know, some design um, innovation in terms of that. I mean, if anybody can do elegant sanitary protocol, I think it's going to be <laughs> the Cannes Film Festival. Indeed. Ugly, thank you so much going out. And uh, if you pop out onto Dufour Strasse 90 to the Bardi Market, you might find a few little elegant masks if there is such a thing.
Reading. Thank you so much for joining us here on Monocle 24. Back here in London, well, everybody's taking the streets to get fit and to hit the ground for the summer. Andrew Tucker's been doing this, our editor-in-chief, for quite a while now. He's taken to the streets to go running and he takes a little uh, app with him to make sure that his every pace and every step is marked. And in this week's column for Monocle 24, he describes the anguish of when things don't go quite as expected. I've been running early mornings. The evenings have become too crowded on my preferred routes now that the weather is so glorious. On Wednesday, I headed out just after 6am and there was something about the temperature, the way the city smelled so springy, that made me decide to push on further than I had planned when I left the house. I headed through the city, along the south bank of the Thames, arced up through Westminster, into Hyde Park, onto Oxford Street... By the time I got home, I was feeling exhausted and incredibly smug. Was this the furthest I'd run all year? Excited, I looked at the app to see how far I had heroically traversed. It said I'd run 750 metres. Panic. Fear. What had happened? Was it all a dream? At this point, the other half had come to see what was making both a wheezing and a wailing sound while simultaneously dripping sweat. It didn't record the run. I went miles and it's just not there, I blurted out in the sort of shocked tone that should really only be reserved for when you discover that your toes have been stolen in the night. And then he said something that made me question who this was that I'd been living with all these years. Oh well, it doesn't matter. You know you did it. That's all that counts. Some advice. Do not start channeling the Dalai Lama when your partner's running app has failed. Wiseness and calmness may seem like virtues to some people, but they look like pretty ugly vices at moments like this. I tried to explain. I need the numbers for my target. It didn't happen if the app denies it. Should I go and run the route again? Luckily for him, he had a breakfast appointment to get to and left the house with some haste, and what looked an annoyingly saintly swagger to me. Thankfully, at the office, I got a better response. Well, from some. Tom Reynolds, our managing editor and a runner, looked almost ashen at the shocking news, but he had been witness to similar catastrophes in the past and had the technical equivalent of a surgeon's operating kit to hand. He knew, for example, a site where you could remap your route and then also how to manually add this information into the running app. Leave this to me, he said, like some superhero. Now, I'm not saying I made a big thing of this, but Nolan, our design editor and user of the same app, was also full of empathy and concern, whereas Josh, the magazine's deputy editor, and not a fellow likely to be spotted gussied up in Lycra, seemed underwhelmed. So, basically, you can just make stuff up and cheat, he said. Well, that was it. You just don't get it, chided Tom. Why would you cheat, asked Nolan. I wondered how, for a second time in a day, I could have so misjudged someone. Cheat? All those statistics, all those beautifully recorded routes are too precious to ever be tampered with. They are truth. I let the other half know the good data news, and a few minutes later, Tom's mobile rang. My partner was phoning him for advice on what to do if such an emergency should happen again. 
Well, it's very distressing when this happens, said Dr Tom. But there are ways of treating this problem successfully. And the patient seems to have made a full recovery on this occasion. Finally, this week at our London HQ, we held a series of small parties to celebrate the launch of the Monocle Book of Homes. Each night was sold out and readers came to have a glass or two of rosé, hear its editor, Nolan Giles, and me talk about the project, and, just as importantly, be out with fellow interesting monoclers. These events made me realise how much I've missed these moments. I heard about new businesses and projects, people's life stories, and finished the week amazed at the loyalty and support we get from our amazing audience. So thank you to everybody who joined us, and I hope that we can get to meet more people again in cities around the world as the year progresses. Indeed, just this week, Tyler has been hosting in Antwerp, Copenhagen and Zurich. But until then, have a great weekend and make sure your app works. Thank you, Andrew. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday. Welcome back to Monocle on Saturday, where the time here in London is 9.17. It's 10.17 in Zurich. We'll be crossing back to the Monocle body marked in just a few minutes' time. But first, in case you have missed anything that's happened in the world in the last seven days, let's hear now from our contributing editor, Andrew Muller, with his this week's episode of What We Learned. We learned this week of the apparent abandonment of former US President Benito Cartman's exciting new social media experiment, which certainly wasn't just a slightly jazzed-up WordPress blog from about 2004. We learned that the portal known as From the Desk of Donald J. Trump had disappeared earlier this week, but that before submitting to the embrace of oblivion, it had emitted one last defiant gurgle in commemoration of Memorial Day. So a dispatch from the desk of Donald J. Trump will now be read, possibly for the last time, by Monocle 24's desk, desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, who will, as usual, invest the thoughts of America's 45th president and its 46th best with absolutely all the gravitas they merit. Wow. I hear they have thousands and thousands of boats parading in Jupiter, despite the fact that they tried to cancel us. Everyone is having an incredible time. On this day, we especially appreciate everyone who served and fought for our great country. I love you all. We learned upon looking into matters further that the Jupiter referred to in the aforecited meditation was not the 79-mooned gas giant orbiting circa 750 million kilometres from the sun, but a seaside settlement in Florida, the and finally state. Jupiter FLA had hosted one of those weird waterborne rallies of which Trump's legions of struggling left-behind economically disadvantaged boat owners seem fond, though disappointingly few of them sank. And we further learned that Trump is passing the days in exile telling anyone who'll still listen caddies, sunbed cleaners, pizza deliverers, Eric, that he fully expects to be reinstated as president by August. So we'll keep an eye on that. Or, alternatively, 
not. It makes a fella proud to be a soldier. We did learn that arguably, very arguably, standards in the US military have lapsed following the departure of the former commander-in-chief. We learned that during a training exercise in Bulgaria, American troops of the 173rd Airborne rehearsing the seizure and securing of buildings on a decommissioned airfield misread a map, understandable what with that funny alphabet they use over there, and stormed a factory which makes machinery for the processing of olive oil. If only they'd raided a vinegar factory as well, they'd at least have been well-dressed. Look, it was that or something-something virgin on a court-martial offence. Maestro, generic Balkan music. For we learned elsewhere in that region of a potentially glorious new entry in the annals of diplomatic snook-cocking. In response to Belarus's forcing down the other week of a Ryanair flight between Greece and Lithuania, a bunch of Romanian politicians are looking at renaming the Bucharest Street on which sits the embassy of Belarus, after Roman Protasevich, the Belarusian dissident who was the target of the hijacking. We learned that the idea of Boulevardal Roman Protasevich enjoys the support of Clotilde Armand, mayor of the Bucharest district in question, and that her honour and others are hoping to get it done by the end of this month, and that they plan to encourage other EU capitals to do similar. Hilarious though this is, we are obliged to note that the OGs of causing the diplomats of one's enemies to make vexatious alterations to their office stationery remain the Islamic Republic of Iran, who in 1981 renamed the Tehran Street, which was home to the British Embassy, after Bobby Sands, the IRA hunger striker. And they say the Ayatollahs have no sense of humour. And not without reason. And in exciting news for any whimsical news monologue which may be vulnerable to the charge often levelled against cynics that they know the price of everything and the value of nothing, we learned the price of nothing. It's 15,000 euros. I, I who have nothing. We learned this via the Italian artist Salvatore Garau, who raised that amount for his sculpture I Am, which is, well, nothing. Specifically, it's a quantity of nothing measuring 150 centimetres by 150, though it is accompanied by a stamped certificate of authenticity. It is accompanied further by some splendidly Rococo hogwash from the artist in question, as will now be read by Monocle's Chiara Ramella, who is not only our culture editor, but Italian as well. So this is very much the role she was born for. No pressure, Chiara. The successful outcome of the auction testifies to an irrefutable fact. The void is nothing but a space full of energy, and even if we empty it and nothing remains, according to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, the nothingness has a weight. It, therefore, has an energy that condenses and transforms itself into particles, in short, in us. When I decide to exhibit an immaterial sculpture in a given space, that space will concentrate a certain quantity and density of thoughts in a precise point, creating a sculpture that from my title alone will take the most varied forms. After all, 
Don't we give shape to a god we have never this seen? This is the best thing oh, I've that's ever great. heard that's in one of these monologues. That's the best piece ever. God, all right, settle down. That ain't working. That's the way you do it. Money for nothing and your chicks. But we have learned from Signor Garral's example, which is why this segment next week will be seven and a half minutes of silence with an invoice attached. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Let's head back now to Dufourstrasse 90 in Zurich, where our body market is in full swing. And we can be uh, well, delighted to say that our regular wine expert, Chandra Kurt, and the editor of Wine Cellar Journal, is on the line, standing by. Uh, glass in hand, I take it, Chandra. Well, I have a bottle in hand. Good morning, Emma. <laughs> That's the spirit. Um, it is only, what, nearly half past ten where you are, but I won't ask any more questions. Um, no. How's it going where you are? What does it look like? What does it sound like? And what does it taste like? Well, it, it's, uh, it's still a little grey here in Zurich, but there are a lot of people in the body market and they, they, you know, they're still drinking coffee, but I think from 11 o'clock the, the bottles will be, will be opened and then the, a lot of rosé wine will be poured because we have a wonderful new, new um, wine that we created together here in the team, uh, which is called Ibu Ure. And while doing this, you know, Emma, I thought a lot about you because it's really going to be your summer wine. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so delighted that you have actually created me my own personal wine. I never thought I'd have that joy. Uh, Ibu Ure, Happy Owl, right? Happy Owl, Happy ha, Owl. Ha, 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 very funny. <laughs> um, and obviously we have Mono, Chow, Mono Chan being our, our sort of mascot and, uh, and, and uh, lovely companion right through, uh, right through Monocle. So tell us, Chandra, you've just said that Monocle's got a wine. Yes. What is it? It's, it? Tell us all about it. Okay, so we start from, from, from the top to down. So it's a Swiss wine. It's a Swiss rosé wine. <clears throat> and it's called Oi de Padri. <clears throat> which is an old uh, Swiss rosé that we do since the 19th century. It's a pure Pinot Noir that uh, comes from the canton of Valais. Valais is the biggest wine region of, of Switzerland. It's when you take the train and you go like to Zermatt or Sasfe, you pass all the grapes there. And and why is it a, a rosé? You know, the color of, of uh, the, the the wine is in the in the skin of the grape, and Pinot Noir is, is a red wine grape. So you you, you tenderly uh, squeeze them, leave it a little bit in the juice, and then you, you take off the liquid and you create a wonderful rosé. Uh, the beauty is that um, the color, of course, it's, it's a seductive color, and I think now we all need a lot of color. It's a, it's a good color for the summer. It it um, goes to all kinds of dishes, and in the taste, it's it's like like fruity. It's a, it's a lot of berries. It's not too not too complex and not too heavy. So it's almost an all day wine drinking. An all day wine drinking, Chandra. You are starting us off with some pretty bad uh, <laughs> pretty bad habits. But eleven o'clock, I'm sure, is a perfectly reasonable time. Um, why did you choose the the grape? That you chose, and, and, and what what was the th- what was the thought process behind it? Because what you pictured there is a very easy wine, and obviously a very Swiss wine. Um, what was why 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 have we gone with what we've ended up with? Okay, because Pinot Noir is, is Switzerland's main red grape variety, and and uh, when when you the wine you create out of it is, is you know it's on the fruity style. You want a, a light wine, a pleasant wine, not too complex wine that really goes to from the barbecue dishes, aperitif to light summer dishes, a, a rosé. In my opinion, shouldn't be too heavy. You know that you, that you really enjoy it. You don't you don't um, have to know too much about which vintage. It has to be fresh and nice cold. I even learned to drink it on the rocks. That sometimes you know you really keep it very fresh. And uh, and, and like I said, Oide Pedri is an old traditional way of doing Swiss rosé. So it's it's really 
connected to our history of, of winemaking. Hang on a minute. I've just heard you say that you put ice in your wine, Chandra. Yeah. Are you feeling all right? You know, I think I can allow myself this. I'm so much busy, you know, half an hour and I have to be again busy with wine. So actually I learned this in the Provence uh, while, while studying the rosé of the Provence, where it gets so hot that it's common when you have lunch and so you put some ice in, in the wine. So why not? Okay, fine. That now, if you say it, it's okay. It's it, it's fine. Now, one thing that we often find out here from from if you're not in Switzerland, let's be honest, and you go to a shop and you can get obviously Provence rosé. You get wine from you know rosé from all over um, France at least, and a couple of other countries uh, dipping in as well. I drank a Canadian rosé a couple of weeks ago. It was all right. Um, but, but you don't often see a Swiss rosé or a Swiss wine outside your neck of the woods. Um, it's a little unfair, isn't it? It's are you absolutely ke- unfair. <laughs> are, you yeah. keep, are you keeping all this good wine for yourselves? Well, this is uh, some of the Swiss secrets. You know, they, they, they manage to drink like 98% of their wine in the country. And, and there's no other wine country that hardly export any wine li- like we do this. So really, if you can get Swiss wine, it, it's, it's you almost are lucky to, to find some. We hope we can ship a little bit of this Ibu Ure also to the UK and um, to all over. Um, but, but really, Switzerland, you know, they drink the wine in the country. So we have 98% at the moment staying uh, inside Swiss tummies. Um, how much of that is is how much is that of the, is that number going to be changed with the with the monocle uh, ibu ure? Yeah, well, let's make a half a percent, maybe more. So okay. let's try to to export a little bit. That's lovely. That's delighted to hear. Now, tell us, have you had a look at the the market yet? What have you seen? What, what what's caught your eye? Actually, I have to say, I just came in. I didn't even see the wine, you know, and, and then um, I went back to the stand with the wine. So I will take now some time and look at all the stands and, and see what I can find with, of course, soon a glass of Ibu Ure in my hand. What are we eating with Ibu Ure, by the way? You know, the beautiful thing about rosé is you can really have an aperitif with it, just just like this, or you, you do the barbecue, even barbe- grilled vegetables go well, like like summer salads with some chicken in it. Um, you can even have like like sushi goes well with, with this rosé. So it's it's a very diverse light wine. It will sure be my, my summer wine. Chandra Kurt, I see a cookery session coming on with you a little bit later. Thank <laughs> you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. And that's all we have time for today's edition of Monocle on Saturday. Many thanks to our producer producer Marcus Hippie and our studio engineer Nora Hall. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Saturday returns next week, but stay with us here on Monocle 24. We're at the Bardi Market all day. We'll be bringing you live updates from all the fun of the fair. So stay with us. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great weekend.